Great to see you here. It's a little bit quieter today. Obviously, we are in the middle of the school holidays, so that's when they give the preaching over to the youth pastor. Um, they leave all the good stuff to throughout the term. But no, it is good to be here with you sharing this morning. Um, Pete's been, he's, so far we've been going through 2 Timothy, and Pete's been taking us through the first four uh, weeks of that. And I've got the privilege of, of today, and then obviously next Sunday, of taking you through both chapters 3 and chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. I was going to make a joke about saying that they'd save the best till last in me being up here. Um, I was going to say that they can't really say that, but after Pete's performance just a moment ago hosting, <laughs> I, think I, I think I should be pretty right. I did check with him just before he got down that I could say that. You know, I struggle to believe just how quickly it is that time goes by. You know, it was almost two years ago that Sarah and I actually started coming to this church. Back then, it was called The Project, which is now a bit of a swear word if you say that around here. And it was, at that time, it was through a range of circumstances uh, that we became convinced, both Sarah and I, that we were eager to seek a church that was faithful to the Word of God. And not just for the sake of better teaching, but so that we might become more faithful in our walk with the Lord. You see, we kind of had reached a point where we recognised that in a very corporate sense that we needed to move from milk to solids. And this wasn't just from up the front, but we also desired to be with people who would also be desiring that personally as well. So after a little while of searching, and it was actually throughout COVID, we wound up coming to this church. And we were super happy with this decision. We thought, great, let's just settle in. We'll sit back and do nothing for about 18 months or so. Um, but about six months later, I wound up on staff, now being called the family's pastor, overseeing the kids and the youth of this place. It certainly wasn't in my five-year plan. To be honest, it wasn't even in my next week plan. Um, however, God had very different plans for what Sarah and I would be to do. And what we wanted to do was to be faithful to that. We wanted to be obedient to what it was that the Lord had called me to quite profoundly. But you see, being faithful isn't always easy. And in fact, it often costs you something. However, regardless of, the co of that cost, my guess is that here this morning, that it's something that you want to do as well. You want to be faithful. You want to be faithful in marriage, faithful to your kids, faithful to your job, and faithful to God. And how do I know this? Well, you wake up, you don't run away from your spouse, you go to your work each day, you do your job, you play with your kids, and you're here at church this morning. My guess is that you are here because you want to be faithful, or at least have some of a desire to be faithful to God. And sure, you don't always do it perfectly, and sometimes you do it with the wrong motivation, and oh, I certainly have, but the earnest desire of you within your heart is to be faithful to God. Well, today as we look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's going to show us through these words of just how the faithful are to live. But he's also going to show us how the faithless live in contrast to it. And he does this because we live in a world today where sadly there is much deception, both in and out of the church. And you'll see today that Paul's trying to make it very, very clear that there is no one holding up a sign saying, I'm trying to deceive you. Watch out. Rather, the people that do it, they are hidden it's disguised and they're often hard to spot. We're going to see three key themes that we're going to look at in chapter 3 today, and they're going to be this. The first one's the world. We're going to explore how those who are faithless, how they live, and what some of their decisions and what their actions are. The second point's going to be false guides. Paul's going to give us some very, very specific examples, perhaps a little bit obscure, but very specific, of some false leaders and how we are to be on guard for them. And then the final part of it is we're going to see how there is actually wisdom for salvation. 
So would you pray with me now as we come to open God's word? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you have spoken it and that it is true. And that in this world of absolute craziness and, and turmoil, uh, we, can, we, can find, we can find you in it. I thank you for what you have said through Paul and 2 Timothy and over these last four weeks and over these next two weeks that we can be encouraged and reminded that we are to stand firm in the faith, to hold fast to your word. And I pray that would be clear here this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I drew a bit of a short straw. Steve might have to... There we go. Right. And uh, Pete was very fortunate. He had one chapter to do over two weeks. But instead, uh, you guys have a whole chapter to do in one week. So it means a fair bit of reading. So we'll be powering through it. So I would ask you to stick with me as best you can. You can follow along with me on the screen. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and who capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men." You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love and my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, per will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learnt and have firmly believed, knowing from what you have learnt and from how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's a lot of text there and I've got 30 minutes to get through it. So strap yourselves in. It was just a few weeks ago, there was a gentleman who came to my front door, and I got pretty excited, hoping that he was going to be a Jehovah's Witness. I am one of those strange people who enjoy a good conversation with them. However, when I opened the door, it wasn't one, and it was a man looking for donations for a charity. Now, this man, he didn't want a one-off donation. He was looking for people who might be prepared to sign up for something ongoing. I can't remember exactly how much it was, but I think it was 4 or $5 a week. Um, it was a very small amount. And I just didn't want to do it. But instead of turning around and saying no, I decided to put on a story, which is true, but I did hype it up just a little bit. I didn't have money to give him as my wife is pregnant, I work part-time, we'll be going back to a single income soon, uh, how tough it is for me, woe is me. Uh, and eventually he turned away, I think he wanted me just to shut up, uh, and then he left. 
Now, look, I understand that we can't give money to every charity. Uh, your money would run out at some point. However, what was underneath all of this for me was the fact that, to be honest, yeah, I could afford the $5 a week, even if it was just for a couple of months. But the reason that I didn't was because I would rather have kept the money for myself. I wanted it for me. I didn't want it to go to some charity. I wanted to keep it, not even to save or to give to another group, but so that I could make myself comfortable. I just wanted the money for myself. I was selfish. And sadly, this is very much within my nature to be like this. I often think of myself long before that of another. But you see, whilst this is within my nature, it's also within the nature of those within the world, and that's you. The people of this world tend to live for themselves and to do what makes them most satisfied. This can be seen in a variety of different circumstances and ways. You can look at some big-end things like the wars in Ukraine. You can look at politics with left versus right. You can look at societal changes. Even the way that marriage and genders can be talked about now can all come back to people wanting whatever they want. They want to be selfish. But I also would say to you, they can be in the small things. If you go to any teacher or any parent here this morning and ask them how well, how well behaved their kids are all the time, they will probably tell you that they just often do what they want to do. That's why you have to discipline them. All of these things, be it really large or really small, I think are some very, very clear signs of the way that man is just seeking to do what they want. Whatever makes them happy, and whatever makes them ultimately God, lowercase g, God, in their own eyes. And the people who live this way, well, they're faithless. As we look at ourselves and the world around us, there are actually two themes that I think summarise it very well. And that's this. We are pro-self and we are anti-others. Pro-self, anti-other. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here in the beginning of this, of this chapter. He read that big list, and I'll read some of them again. He said, People will be lovers of self, money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, without self-control, not loving good. There's still more there. The key theme within all of those is pro-self and anti-others. Now, when Paul writes about this, he actually opens it by talking about in the last days. And this in itself can be a big can of worms. You see, there is some debate as to around when the actual last days begin. Some scholars believe that the last days begin when Jesus was simply born. Others believe it was when he actually died. Others believe when it was when he rose again. Others when he ascended to heaven. And there's even views outside of that. However, I think what is abundantly clear is that regardless of what your interpretation might be, of whenever it might have begun in that 30 to 50 year window, what truly is clear between all of them is that we are in the last days now. Now this list that Paul writes, it actually has 19 characteristics of our faithless nature. And what I don't want for you to be doing here this morning is to be sitting and nudging your partner or nudging your kids and trying to work out how many of them they don't fulfil. That's not the point. The point that Paul is trying to make here to Timothy is that he just wants you to see that it's not God's plan for humanity. We aren't to just live and do whatever suits our own desires. Working hard to get rich or to make yourself happy. Don't like the job, just quit it. Live very, very luxuriously, but give sparingly. Are you unhappy in marriage? Oh, well, you should just leave that too and move on. I can't give in this life because it's going to cost me. I think you get the idea, right? And it's tremendously sad. This is not God's design or plan at all. 
And the question to really ask is, how do we get to this point today? Well, often like Pete, he likes to go back to Genesis. So that's where we're going to go back to today as well. And there's a really interesting response, or should I say a lack of response, that we hear in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, they've just eaten the fruit, they've just sinned, and they recognise that they're naked for the first time. They came into the world, they weren't clothed, it was never a problem for them. And God says to them, who told you that you were naked? And Adam never answered. I think it's quite profound, to be honest, because I think that this lack of response actually points to what was the biggest change in all of history. It was in that moment, Adam and Eve's eyes were turned away from God and towards themselves. They were never clothed, but it was never an issue, because they were walking with God. They were focused on Him. Sin makes us self-aware. Prior to God, so prior to sin, we were God-aware. I'm going to read that again. Sin makes us self-aware. Prior to sin, we were God-aware. I don't know about you, but I know for me, I've had times where I've been in worship or in prayer or reading the scriptures, and when just for a moment, you're able to forget about the world, and I can focus on Jesus alone. It never lasts a lifetime, as much as I wish it did. might be a couple of seconds. It could be a few minutes, but it often ends. And why does it end? Well, because you think about yourself. You think about something else that you'll be doing. But you know, that tiny moment in God's presence is exactly what it's going to be like when we're in his presence one day for all of eternity. Remember, I had a conversation with my dad, who's here this morning, and uh, I said to him, Dad, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this. Now, I think it was going to be, why, why, why did he make cats? Um, <laughs> you won't have a response for that. But my dad's response was very simple, but I think quite profound. And I now see it to be true. Remember him saying, Thomas, when you see him face to face, you won't say anything. When you get to heaven, we will not be looking at ourselves. We will be in awe and in wonder and with thanksgiving, with our eyes fixed upon him, the one who just saved your soul. So I think you will agree, and I hope you will see that the, that the words that Paul uses to Timothy are not just a guess, but they're actually quite prophetic in a sense, and we are truly seeing the outworking of this in our world today. We are a people just like this. We are a faithless people, largely speaking, and it's tragic. Now, before you will go home today, though, and say to yourself, well, maybe I'm not a Christian because I sometimes do some of the things on that list, I just want to encourage you and remind you this morning that this list presented by Paul is not talking about people who struggle with sin. I still struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. A pastor is not immune by it by any stretch of the imagination. But I would say to you, if you struggle with sin, that's actually good. If you are being torn between the flesh and the spirit, I think it's terrific news. It's actually a sign of salvation. <laughs> because no one who doesn't have the Holy Spirit cares if they sin against God. You think about it. Might have friends or family, maybe yourself before you came to the Lord. When you didn't love Jesus, you didn't care. You weren't worried about offending a holy God. They embrace it. The world promotes it. They love it. So if you were here this morning and if you struggle with sin and you wrestle in it, I'd say good. But I would also encourage you as well, so I'd plug here for Pete, get into a community group. Don't do life alone. Have brothers and sisters around you in the church where you can be sharpened and be held accountable. That's important. 
but the wrestle is good. There is no wrath coming to you if you trust in Jesus. That's assured. That was done on the cross. This list provided by Timothy, sorry, to Timothy and subsequently to us today is to purely help us to, to see what the world is like and to see how the faithless live and to serve to us as a warning. Now, a number of years ago, and I could get in trouble for saying this, uh, my wife and her sister were doing an orienteering course through the forest. Afternoon turned into night, and we were at the finish line, and there were all these people turning up. They just finished this event, and there was still no Sarah or Tiff. Time went on, a little bit of panic had set in, as they hadn't turned up well after everyone else had finished. And we were just in talks, very slowly, calmly about it, just in talks about who are we going to send in, into the forest to go and find them. Um, I think it was too cold for me. I didn't know if I was going to go. Um, <laughs> send someone else. But just literally, just as we were about to do this, uh, they then appeared out of the forest because they came across, uh, well, they stumbled across a helpful guide who knew the direction. Readily do we pause and consider the power, or I would say the importance, of having a guide with a compass who knows the direction. Because the alternative of this is you wind up getting very lost in a forest and get awfully stuck. But there's a problem, though. There are lots of people who say that they're good guides, but they ultimately aren't good. And in the world of the church, they are what we would call wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like good guides, they have some of the equipment, and they probably help for a time, but ultimately the path that they take you on leads you to destruction. In verses 5 to 9, you can take a look at it, Paul goes from using a rather broad whole church description, and he now becomes very, very specific. And we'll talk about some warnings for the church, and he'll actually show us what the faithless, disqualified people will look like. Because they are actually very difficult to spot. This is what he says, verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and who capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning, yet never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. For they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. There are places across the world that have crosses on the front of the building, baptism tanks, elders, deacons, worship songs, great coffee, great kids' ministries, Bibles in the back of the pews, and they have the outward appearances of what the church should be. Yet they are filled with some, and that's the operative word, some people who on that day will not inherit the kingdom of God. For people in this boat, they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny his power. So I think the question becomes, what is this power and what is the denial? And it's actually rather simple. For the people in that category, they think it's those things. They think it's the religious practices, the good feelings, man's effort to self-improve, or man's effort to save when it isn't. They refuse to talk about sin and the need for repentance and for salvation. They will not see the scriptures as fully true. They will deny aspects of the faith or make myths or, t or even twist the scriptures to talk and to suit them. And next week we'll talk about that a lot more. Yet these people, people will be quite happy to get up the front 
and to tell you about the pleasures of this life and the reasons that you should be happy, rich, healthy, and self-focused. And Paul wants you to run from them. And I want you to run from them too. If you can't run, walk quickly. (laughs) The biggest risk to the modern church isn't the world, but it's actually the wolves within the church. And Paul is greatly concerned about this. And that's what he goes on to talk about. But he uses some rather interesting examples, and I could get in a bit of trouble if I do this incorrectly. Two words, weak women. I have to tread very carefully here as I could be sleeping outside for an awfully long time. No, there is a genuine reason that he does this. You see, back then, women were not highly educated, if at all. They often worked in settings that weren't especially glamorous. And at that time, they were the most susceptible to being led astray. And to put simply, what Paul's trying to explain here is this, that if you were a lion chasing after your prey, are you going to go after the, fast, or, sorry, the fastest, strongest running animal at the front to devour, or are you going to go after the easier, slower one, maybe the injured one at the back? What he's simply trying to say here is that these uneducated women were the most vulnerable way to be attacked in that church at the time. There was one commentary I read, and he shared that Paul isn't using this at all to say that women are weak, or silly, but to simply demonstrate that those who are weak in the faith are the most likely to be tempted, male or female. Often for these people who are weaker in the faith, they will attend the service, they'll partake in activities, they might consider themselves a part of the church, they continue to accumulate knowledge, but at no point do they ever come to the truth. At no point for them does the nature ever change of the relationship from becoming purely a religious practice to a relationship with God. People on these boats, they usually wander off into sinful habits. They find theologies to suit their own desires. They may even talk about deconstruction in their faith as it helps them to truly figure it out. They might even simply move between churches every few months to just suit their own desires if they don't like the smallest of things. But no matter how big or small it might be, These are the people who are most susceptible to being swooned by the wolves. That's what Paul wants you to see. That's what I want you to see. We have to remain steadfast. And he helps us to do this as well, so that we now know, sorry, he's now going to show us um, what these false teachers look like, what they do, what some of their actions are. Put your hand up if you've ever heard of the names Janus and Jambres in the Bible before. Outside of this text, I should say. (laughs) Yeah. In verses 7 and 8, he uses those rather interesting names, Janus and Jambres. It's referred that they actually opposed Moses by Paul. However, when you go back to Exodus, you don't actually read of their names. They're not in the Bible directly at all. And I found this rather interesting as I prepared for this over the last few weeks. Um, Why would he do this? He was a smart man. Why did he feel the need to reference two people who to no one else really understood it? Well, it's pretty interesting. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, this is what it says. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they did the same by their secret arts. Do you know, it was widely known by the uh, Israelites and now by the Jewish community that the two magicians who came to do these things were named Janus and Jambres. What was their crime? Well, they tried to mock and to imitate Moses. As the plagues were happening to Egypt, these two magicians were trying to do the same things. 
They were trying to show that they were the same as Moses. However, there was one very, very critical difference between the two of them. One of them could bring about redemption and the other couldn't. You see, for Janice and Jambres, they could bring the frogs, but they couldn't get rid of them. They could turn the water into blood, but they couldn't turn it back. One of them, Moses, he was faithful. He served the God of Israel. And the others, they were faithless. They served man. Yet the crazy thing is, these magicians, for the people at that time, they looked as though they were being faithful. They had the appearance of it, but they just weren't. They were frauds. They had all the tricks, they looked the part, but ultimately they were proven and shown to be fraudulent. You know, I think this is hugely challenging for us in this world today. There are so many churches, so many Christians that do wonderful things. There are amazing worship bands. There are some, I wrote down there are some good Christian movies. I don't know if there are. Most of them are pretty cheesy. But there are some great books, social media presences, and all of it looks really, really good. And some of these things are really good. I'm not saying for a moment to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I do speak very carefully when I talk about the church because Christ calls it his bride. But I want you to see that not everything is helpful. Whilst we might think that the church would struggle because of the world's ways, it's just not true. The church, statistically speaking, actually thrives under times of persecution and pressure. In the countries where the church is most persecuted, that's where we see the most growth happening. I think one of the greatest dangers from those, sorry, for the church of this world is done by those Christians within them. More damage is done by Christian books than by non-Christian ones. More, dam- more harm is done by Christian teachers than by Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or even atheists. Why? Because those teachers are always nearby and always looking for new ways to creep in unaware. And even today, within churches across the world, they prey upon the weak and the vulnerable. So be on your guard. Guard what you watch, guard what you read, guard who you read and who you listen to. And as Pete said last week, you need to evaluate us as preachers, ensure that what we are saying from up the front here lines up with the scriptures. And if it doesn't, you should talk to us. But I would say to you this as well, it all sounds a bit frightening, but don't lose sleep over it. Those false churches and those people, they will not survive. And Paul says this in verse 9. He says that their folly will become plain to them. And I can simply say that this is true. If your church or your life is not built upon the rock, it will crumble. It was only recently I heard a story of a church that was over in America, and I knew a number of people who attended this church, and it was set up and established as what they call the progressive church. It was intent at the time on preaching what we would call the false gospel. Supporting, encouraging, and proclaiming sinful ways of the world. And yeah, sure, it attracted some people. It had a period of growth. However, during, uh, I think they even started another campus or two. But during the time of COVID, they shut down because they were afraid of that. And they never reopened. All within the space of a decade or so. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You know, this church that I just explained, it became so like the world that eventually it was the world and it had no purpose but to die off, it had become useless. And this is really the warning that Paul's giving us here. Don't be deceived. Because if you do, you will be ineffective. You, and if you are weak in the faith and always wandering, then you are simply a target for those wolves. Now, we've looked at what the faithless live like through the world, and a little bit more closely with Janice and Jambres, and if we stopped here, it would be just rather depressing. It'd feel quite hopeless, wouldn't it? However, this final section, we're now going to look and see how we can actually stand firm, even with everything that's going on around us, and how it is that we can not only stand firm, but actually be called wise. We can be wise for salvation, which I think is remarkable. Verses 10 to 17 here for this section. Do you remember the old sayings, actions speak louder than words? Or even, perhaps you've heard this one, a picture is worth a thousand words? They both convey that the visible is far more important to mere talk. Perhaps you'd say it like this, whom you learn from and how they do it is just as, if not more important than what they're saying. I say this to my youth leaders all the time. The fact that they show up, participate, listen and be available will mean far more to those kids that they lead than ever saying anything to them. Words are helpful, but their actions mean a lot more. You know, as I was growing up, I consider myself incredibly blessed. And actually, my grandparents are here this morning and they're in this bit, which is great. My grandparents and my parents, they all read, they prayed, they worshipped, they committed to church consistently, they tithed regularly. They made decisions to choose God over even family or sporting events. Even on holidays, we'd go to church. And these are all things that some of you might choose to argue and say, well, it was done out of a religious spirit, just practices. But as someone who has lived it, I can testify to the fact that they were done because it shows that they valued the Lord and that he was a priority to them. In fact, I was talking with my grandfather just this last Thursday about the fact that each, or every second year we have our big family gathering, we have a Christmas uh, worship time, and we share a little message, goes for five or ten minutes, um, we were talking about the importance of that. And the question was asked, should we still be doing it? And I said, absolutely. Because for my cousins, for my family, who aren't walking with the Lord at the moment, what a powerful witness for them to see. But I do say this as well, and I recognise this, that this is true, there are many of you who are in this building who are first-generation Christians. And that's truly exciting. So whilst I lament the fact that you haven't been able to grow up with that as your heritage, I rejoice in the fact that you can now set that same example for those in the generations to come. But regardless of whether you've been blessed like I have from the beginning or whether you've come to faith later in life, the simple fact remains that actions are powerful. And you see, as Christians, we are called to live lives that are set apart. We are called, you are called to be faithful, not be faithless like the world. Verse 10, he says this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my suffering, all that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them, the Lord rescued me. Those first two words he uses, you, however. 
He's immediately contrasting Timothy to that of the world. You see, Timothy had modelled his life from Paul. The good, the bad, the ugly, the joy. And who did Paul model his life from? Well, it was the Lord Jesus. I think Paul knew that the most important thing that he could do was to model his life of faith for those around him to witness. Before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. Say that a hundred times over quickly. He was the Roman who persecuted Christians. He oversaw the execution of many, many believers. He was zealous for the law and he was determined to stop the church. Yet all of a sudden he has this radical encounter with Jesus and he becomes forever changed. Now sure, his words were powerful and he's written half the New Testament. But do you think that people believed him purely because of what he said alone? Or because of how he lived in contrast to the life prior to that? You see, the difference between the faithless and the faithful is quite simple. Do their actions line up with the transformation that they say has taken place? In Paul, we can clearly see this, that his actions do. They demonstrate and they confirm what it is that he is proclaiming. He's a transformed man. God's touched his life. For those of you who love Jesus here, I'm sure and I hope that you would attest to the fact that that your life, your ways, your thoughts, your actions are now totally different to what they were before you met Jesus. Hear me carefully, not saying perfect. I'm not saying that your life, your actions, your thoughts or all of that becomes perfect. We are still in a sinful world. But have they changed? Has your desire to repent, has it changed? I know mine did, massively. So here Paul is reminding Timothy and subsequently us today that we are to look toward the life of Christ and ultimately also to that of the apostles. If we want to be faithful to the Lord, we should look to them. They're good models. And how do we look to them? Through the scriptures. That's why he says, continue in what you have learnt and the writings that are able to make you wise for salvation. He's talking about scripture. You see, wisdom in the dictionary is simply described as the quality of good judgment. And Jesus himself is said to have increased in it. Luke chapter 2, it said Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. And it's talked about in some of the parables. Do you remember the house that was built on the sand? And the other one on the rock? Whose house was it that stood when the wind and the waves came? It was the wise man's built on the rock. Paul is exhorting Timothy and you, and I'm doing the same today, to build your house on the rock. And how is this done? What's well, done through knowing the scriptures? Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, we've talked a lot this morning about the wicked, the ways of the world, their faithless nature. But you know, the very thing that makes them faithless is that they reject Jesus and his word. That's the difference. Evil, evil people, false teachers and imposters, they will always be around until the Lord returns and they will go from bad to worse. But that's no excuse. (laughs) We are to continue in what we have learnt, what we firmly believe, and how we have been made wise from our childhood because of the scriptures. 
But see, what's so powerful about these scriptures is that they actually lead to salvation. But only for one reason. That's because they point to Christ. The scriptures themselves are not salvation. They are just words on a page. But they point to the Saviour who can provide it. Verse 16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible is truly powerful. don't know if you've ever stopped just to consider that. As I said, it's not the physical paper itself that has the power, but it's the fact that it's the living word of God. And Paul uses a rather interesting word here when he said that it was breathed out by God. You know, it's the same word that we read of in Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 to 2, Psalm 33, Isaiah 4. It's the same word that we read of when God literally, of, oh, sorry, of, of God literally speaking and exhaling. We see the same description of when he created the earth. It's like he's saying, as man physically wrote the words, it was actually the Spirit speaking, guiding and directing that which has come out. And the scriptures are truly remarkable. It isn't just for back then or for the people of that time. Some people like to argue that, there are, that it's not for us today. We shouldn't read that part of the Bible. It's not applicable to us or relevant. Every time you open the word of God, it is God speaking to you through his word. It's God's word. It's the most remarkable book. And you can sit in church or you can read it yourself at home and it will actually reprove you. I don't spend my time planning to preach and go, I'm going to pick on these certain people this week. I did it, Pete, at the start. But I don't, I don't plan that. None of us do. But I don't get up here and want to yeah, pick on certain of you. It does that work in you. It convicts you with the Spirit. It has this profound ability that the more that you read it and that you seek to understand it, the more that it actually understands you and it changes you. The world hates it. The world despises it, they ignore it, they reject it, but we love it. We love it here at Restoration Church, and you should too. Because you see, the fool, well, there's someone who looks inwards. They look to being their own truth, towards their own ideas, their own hopes and their own wants. And in doing this, they remain a fool. They build their house on the sand. But the wise person, well, they're taught, they're approved, they're equipped, they're trained by the word, and as a result, they will and you will grow in stark contrast to that of the world. To finish up this morning, I'm going to have a drink and get the tissues ready, because I will cry, that's what I do. I'm going to share a little story with you about the power of the word of God. Early in the year of 2020, COVID had just begun, and I found myself having a wrestle with God. You see, in this time and in the months prior to that, I had several people who I knew personally, as well as some figures within the church, who uh, I looked up to, who had decided that, that church and that God was no longer for them. Now, whilst I pray, and I do earnestly hope that they might one day come back, this act of walking away or denial of God is a thing called apostasy. And these people had a variety of reasons for why they'd left. However, it shook me. I was at a point in my life where I don't think I'd maybe seen one or two people prior to that, but to have a handful of them in one go over the space of a month or two, it profoundly shook me. But you see, I wasn't in a crisis of faith or doubting in God. However, there was a question that arose for me for the first time in my life, could that happen to me? 
Could that happen to me? And you know, I actually began to lose sleep over it. I cried about it. I lamented the very fact that anyone could walk away before thinking about myself going, I'd never want to do that, but could it happen to me? I'm, I'm scared. I just want to be with the Lord forever. So why would someone do that? And like never before, my head became clouded. My ability to pray, to read, to sing, to do any of those things was gone. I wouldn't say gone, but it seemed gone. It was hard to do. And to make it all really, really exciting, COVID sunk in. Church at the time stopped happening in person. And I just felt incredibly isolated. To put it simply, I think the enemy was having quite a field day with me at that time. One day, though, I was writing in this journal, and you're welcome to see it if you want for proof. I was writing in this journal, and I was crying out to the Lord through the midst of it. And I said, Lord, would you help me? Would you help me? Would you encourage me? Would you send someone or do something to say that you love me? Do something. (laughs) I'm desperate. The following day after writing this, I was sitting at my desk working from home in in the previous sales job that I had. And I got a phone call, and it was from an old faithful minister named Neil. And he and I had a great relationship, but it was never to do with that of faith per se. It was more to do with him calling me with a problem with his internet or his phone, and I'd fix that. And that was great. I enjoyed it. And I loved doing it. But on this day, he called me. So I saw the call come through, and I answered it. And I was actually, to be honest, pretty rude and sarcastic. I said, oh, Neil, good morning. Have you got a problem with your internet today? And he said, no, Tom. I said, is it a problem with your phone then? And he said, no, it isn't. So I shut up pretty quickly. And he said to me, Tom, I was praying this morning and I was prompted by the Spirit that I needed to call you and encourage you this day. This shattered me. You see, this wasn't normative. It wasn't an expected phone call. Well, frankly, it wasn't even the person I thought would call me if God would send someone to do that. But it was him. And you know what he did? As he spoke, he encouraged me with a powerful personal testimony of his own life. Explaining that despite having been a minister for, I think it was 30 plus years, he still had times of struggles in the faith. There are some scenarios in his life that he just can't wrap his head around. And that for him, it is a daily battle with the flesh. However, after a couple of minutes of this, he then said, are you near your Bible? To which I went and got it. And for over the next hour, we sat there and he didn't seek to encourage me with his own words or some nice thoughts or a five-point step on how you can get your life back in order. We simply sat there and we prayed and we read. He poured over scriptures that he's memorized We talked with God together. We met with him on that day. And I can honestly say to you, I was changed forever because of that day. That led to a desire in my life that it's like, I'm done with the old Tom. I want to know you, God. I want to be faithful to you and I want to serve you. I wasn't just changed because God heard and answered me in such a tangible way. I was also changed because I experienced and saw firsthand the power of the Word of God. 
Like never before on that day, Christ was so clearly illuminated for me that it was as if any struggle or any power that the enemy had were gone. Has it been perfect since then? No. Are there days of wrestle? Yeah. But do I have an assurance of salvation that my God loves me and he died for me? A hundred percent. And how did this happen? Because God used someone who was faithful to be obedient to his prompting, to take a step of faith and to contact me. Do you see that? God used someone who was faithful. Remember, I got on my knees after this day and I've written in the journal, I think his pages are still wet from the tears that I wrote, with thanksgiving to my God who heard me. And I will forever remember that day. And you know the amazing thing is I can't even, I don't even have time to go on literally how the following week I was so full of faith that I was lifting all these prayers to God. And like I've never seen before that, and to be honest, I haven't even seen since that, he was merciful and answered me like you wouldn't believe. Around some massive areas in my life. But church, here's the thing. You don't have to have been a minister for 30 or 40 years to be faithful. You can be and you should do it in the small things. It's not about living up to some works-based or living to perfect or living to this um, unachievable perfection because it just isn't possible. What you should be doing is trying to live differently to the world around you, to shine brightly for him and to be faithful to what it is that's right in front of you each day that he's called you to do. Because as I was preparing for this this morning, actually Chris can come back up as well, as I was preparing for this, this message and considering what it is that the faithful live like, the consideration for me was to go, well, who is the only truly perfectly faithful person? And it's the Lord Jesus. Look no further than the cross. There you see perfect justice, perfect mercy, grace and love in Jesus who was nailed to that cross. We read it last week. If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's who he is. Church, we have a faithful God. In the midst of whatever season you're in in life, he is faithful. You need to remember that. But he calls you to be faithful too. So in the midst of the, of the deception and the world around, and yes, it can be hard. It can be hard to spot. It can be hard to see. You should turn to him in his word. If you don't read his word, well, you should. That'd be great. If you want to know how to do that, you should come and talk with us. Any of these guys down the front, we'd love to talk with you more about that. Um, but if you are in his word, we'll continue in it. Don't let go of it. Because in it, we have the word of God. And that is truly powerful. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you we praise you and we worship you this morning for who you are. That you are the faithful one. You are the one who came to this earth, the earth that you created, in the form of a baby. <laughs> you grew in wisdom and stature. You never sinned and you went to the cross and you died. And upon you was placed my sin, my shame, and that of all people who turned to you. So this morning for that, I just say thank you. You are worthy of praise. 
Father, I pray that you would give all of us here eyes to see you for who you are. And like you did for that day with that gentleman calling me, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, through your people, through prayer. And that we wouldn't be seeking to to be filled by the ways of the world or by the deception that goes on around, but that we would have a a firm, steady trust in you and in your word. Jesus, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.